Okay, Jesse, I am so thrilled to be here and hear the exciting conclusion of our first ever two-parter. What can we expect today? Today we can expect more depraved acts, more horrible luring of victims on the internet, but also a measure of justice. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dreams, schemes, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Consider subscribing and maybe leave a lovely review to help new people discover the show. Unless you don't like the show and then definitely don't leave a review. Definitely just like send us a message or like hate mail, <laughs> like in snail mail instead. Thanks. Thank you so much. We'll take the criticism, just not on the We reviews. do. Actually, I really appreciate it. Like I think we've done our best to try to get back to everybody and really incorporate any sort of criticism in our show because we really love you guys, especially like there's a lot of you guys who like write to us and are so kind about suggestions. Thinking about others. Yeah, thinking about others and how they're feeling. And we really appreciate an empathetic reach out. And if you're interested in more content, if you've already binged all of the main feed content, please consider going over to Patreon and joining. You can go to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about all the different tiers of support and all of the sweet little love murder gifts that you get. <laughs> yes. And this week we actually have quite a few new patrons. So we better get to it so we can get to part two. So welcoming our new amazing patrons. Anna D, Rebecca P, and Amberly K. Miranda V, Hillary N, and Leah R. Jen A, Kate D, and Jennifer C. Maya K, Abigail W, and Vicky. Red L, Mira W, and Lauren S. And last but not least, Kev. Welcome to the group, everyone. We cannot thank you again for your support. Every week, we mean it from the bottom of our hearts, whether you are joining us on Patreon or you are supporting our sponsors or you're just here listening to us and following us on Instagram and being our, you know, kind of invisible bestie. Our invisible online bestie. <laughs> yes, we're down with it. We are in a mutual parasocial relationship with you. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. This is part two. Obviously, we talked about last week. Part one and part two is a hard for me, man. I want to deliver you a full narrative every week. So this was rough, but it really did need to be two parts. You did find the perfect place to pause. Yes. I and I, say. I did not leave y'all on a cliffhanger. And today you are going to get a mostly satisfying conclusion. I think it's hard in true crime to really ever have a satisfying conclusion because the stories we tell are so sad. But when there is a measure of justice, as I like to say, if there's somebody that is taken off the streets, I feel like that is a happy ending. The happiest that they can exist. Oh, we're also happy because we are together today. We are together. We are in person. Ciao's. <laughs> Cheers. So we are full of mirth at getting to be in the presence of our best friend. And actually our next episode too, which you will find out is going to be a great surprise next week. We're switching it up next week. Wait till you see what's going on. 
we will also be together. So you'll probably tell on the energy of the next two episodes. But again, this is part two, so I cannot be wordy about my intro. So let's just jump right into it. Yeah. You're going to get all of us. You're going to drive the whole train off the rails. I know. We just got to focus back on part two here. Well, we are back in the depraved world of what is considered potentially the world's first internet serial killer that we know about. We left off with John Robinson getting out of prison. His prison librarian lover, Beverly Bonner, disappearing and John discovering the million and one ways to dupe lovely, lonely women on the internet. If you haven't already, then definitely go back and listen to part one from last week first. So Beverly is now out of the picture. And Nancy Jo, John's wife, she is managing this mobile home park that they're also living in. I think it was called the Santa Barbara Estates. And even though I think this was in Kansas, they're like really like straddling Kansas and Missouri in a lot of these places that we're talking about. But they all had names of California places in this mobile home park. So they're technically straddling Missouri, Kansas, and California. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) So Nancy would get up and she would go to work because she had to go to an office to manage the whole mobile home park. And he wasn't really doing much with his time. So he would get up and log himself onto the World Wide Web. (sighs) Yes, this is dangerous. And it's interesting because in the John Douglas book, he talks about, and we touched upon this in the last episode a little bit, how the growth of the internet outpaced law enforcement's ability to find these predators. And like regulate. And regulate how they were, I guess, prosecuting crimes that were committed online. It's a whole new World. It was very hard when this technology boomed for law enforcement to very much scramble to keep up with what was going on. And obviously, so much of an issue with child pornography, especially. But there was also just predators everywhere who wanted to take advantage of somebody, whether that is just something as simple as conning them or swindling them or selling them something that they were never going to receive or getting their credit card information, all the way to the love scams we see on something like catfish nowadays. And then there was also dangerous serial killers looking for victims. And this is really the part in the story where John becomes more than, it's just really interesting about his, I guess, pathology, what kind of serial killer he is. Because up until this point, nobody has found any of the bodies. Of these women. They just seem like they have disappeared, including one baby. Vanish. They're gone. Nobody has found anything. There's nothing linking him to these women other than, in most cases, especially when you're looking back at Paula Godfrey and Lisa and Tiffany Stassi, they were last seen. So there's some involvement. There's a connection. But there's nothing that's coming up forensically, right? Yeah. So we have no idea what his goal is here. It doesn't seem like it could possibly be financial. And this is where he moves into almost a Bell Gunness style of something we actually see a lot in female serial killers, which is that they are killing for money. They're killing to receive some sort of profit. It's like the black widows that get life insurance on all of their husbands and then kill them. What we're going to be moving into in this next section is we see a different version of him, which maybe it was 
just for killing. Like he just was this sick, depraved person that wanted to have power over women, that wanted to control women, that wanted to control so deeply that he wanted to be godlike in controlling life and death. I mean, I could see that completely being a motivation behind John Robinson's acts. But then it's almost like he decides, well, while I'm doing it anyways, why don't I make myself a tidy little sum while I'm at it? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. But it's really interesting because he's kind of like straddling these different types of serial killers and motivations now. And this is also very hard because what we're going to be discussing too is that the women that he's taking advantage of and scamming are people that are hard up, that are having a hard time in life financially themselves. Yeah. And he's taking advantage of people that we discussed who want to be submissives for the reason that they're fatigued by how difficult their life has been and they want somebody else to help them and take control and make decisions for them. And so it's particularly heinous. And this next group of victims is very sensitive. So there's a trigger warning because there is a, a minor involved in this and it's a mother and a teenage daughter who ended up being John Robinson's next victims. So this is going to be a rough one to just jump right into part two with. Sheila Dale Faith was in her mid-40s when she came upon Slave Master, that was his screen name, in a chat room. Sheila's life was absolutely one of these lives that I was talking about that had been extraordinarily difficult. After her parents' divorce She was only five years old when they both essentially abandoned her and her siblings. It seemed like her dad took off after the divorce and just disappeared. And her mom was overwhelmed and ended up dumping her and her siblings with her elderly parents who were not really equipped, it sounds like, to handle raising these young children. And I think, you know, abandonment by a mom is something that just does break you in so many ways. Sheila was bullied at school for being overweight. She was very lonely. And the feeling of being abandoned by both of her parents, essentially, and I think that her grandparents probably struggled with expressing love, kind of left her with this huge hole in her heart of needing and desiring love so much. That was her one goal in life. And it felt almost impossible that that would occur to her because she did not feel like she was particularly lovely. All of these other kids at school were bullying her and making fun of the way she looked. So there was a very brief and wonderful moment in Sheila's life where she did find somebody that was truly someone who loved her for exactly who she was, and they started building a life together. And this was her husband, John Faith. They met and married in the late 70s, And they ended up having only one child together. It was a little girl they had named Debbie. And Debbie brought them a lot of joy, but she also brought them a lot of challenges. Debbie was born with cerebral palsy and spina bifida. Oh, my God. Yes. And so she was wheelchair bound. Yeah. And obviously raising a disabled child comes with a lot of complexity and financial challenges and stress on the marriage and in life. It seems like by all accounts, John and Sheila did a really good job, and John was like the glue that was holding this family together. However, it's just devastating in every capacity. John Faith had a battle with cancer, and he died in the summer of 1991. So how old was she then, the baby? 
She was probably 11 or 12. So we've got Debbie. She's only 11 or 12. By all accounts, Debbie was someone who had incredible spirit that even though she had all of these challenges, she wanted to walk someday. That was her goal. And she said she also wanted to be a gym teacher. Okay. Everyone said that she had a great spirit. She was like one of those kids that would be like, okay, wheelchair races. And just was optimistic. Yeah. And when John Faith died, it seemed like it really did change the fate of Sheila and Debbie's lives. Yeah. They lost the center and the anchor of the family, but also financially. He was the sole breadwinner. And you have to remember that Sheila had had this very difficult time and John had really been the one that, you know, John and Debbie made her life worth living. Yep. So it seems like things really tanked after John passed away. It seems like Sheila was looking for love in all the wrong places. She was going to these BDSM chat rooms. She was just looking for an escape. And she was also struggling to take care of Debbie because Debbie weighed something like 200 pounds and she was having a hard time caring for her and hoisting her into bed and all the things that she was doing to be a mom. But at the same time, I think that both Sheila and Debbie were were challenged. There's like no other way to put it other than this was a very, very hard time in their life. It's like losing a parent is hard enough on its own. But then when you really needed both parents to help take care of your child... Yes. They were both a team as far as caring for Debbie and also the financial aspect. It was just kind of an avalanche of hard times after John passed away. And she ended up meeting a new John, unfortunately, online. And there is a picture, and I don't know if I could find it because I tried to Google it and I didn't find it, but I'm sure it exists somewhere. So we'll look for it, guys. But John Robinson sent out the same picture to pretty much every woman he tried to woo on these BDSM websites. And it was very wannabe cowboy. Like it's a denim number with like a cowboy hat, like on a farm, which is funny because he's like a little older. So it's kind of giving, guys, there was an ad from 2002 and it's Wilford Brimley. And he's like on a ranch talking about diabetes. And I'm sorry. I don't know if I've actually seen this picture or if it just lives in my brain as him being Wilford Brimley. I hope it's the latter. But doesn't he kind of look like him too? Yeah. Yeah, So it's very weird. Sorry, Wilford Brimley. I'm very sorry. So yeah, but that's like this picture. It's like him. He's wearing this denim. He's got the hat on. Is he riding a horse? I don't know if he was riding a horse. I don't even think he had a horse at this point. So he probably borrowed a horse from somebody. So he convinced Sheila that he was a wealthy businessman ranch owner. Okay. And that he was in love with her. This yes. is his shtick. This is his shtick. This is what he's going to go on. It's Gusto. For all of these. Andy thinks that Gusto is pronounced, how do you say it? Gusto. Gusto. He was approaching these cons and serial killings with Gusto, I would say. Yes. But for worse. I mean, I think Gusto is usually like for good. Like it's like having a... It's like, do you have the oomph? Yes, but this is this is a bad oomph. So he's going to tell a lot of women that he's this wealthy ranch owner. He's a very successful Kansas City businessman. Got he it. inherited these businesses from his dad. And that he's just in this lifestyle and he's looking for love and a partner. And while he's having these conversations, he finds out what's difficult about their life, how they're surviving. So... She's telling him about 
how she lost the love of her life, how, you know, she's having a hard time with her daughter and wanting to provide her with the best opportunities and healthcare and schooling, but it's difficult because she's on government assistance. And he's asking her questions about what kind of government assistance she's getting, what kind of disability is Debbie getting. She thinks he's asking her these questions because he wants to help her, because he loves her, that he can't believe she is working so hard and just surviving on this. And really, he's saying, I think you should come out here and you should be with me and I'm going to take care of you. He is telling her that he found Debbie a school to go to and that he believes that at the school they can help her with her lifelong passion of wanting to walk and that he even has figured out that there's ways that he can make it so Debbie can ride horses on his ranch. And of course, she's listening to this thinking, this is the answer of my prayers. This is a man that is going to take me away from all of this struggle and he's helping my daughter achieve her dreams. And this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to us. And he says, don't you even worry. I'm going to come out and I'm going to get you. We're going to all go live on my ranch together. We are going to have a happily ever after. Unsurprisingly, they disappeared. Yeah, they went to Rainbow Ranch. Yeah, unfortunately. Debbie and Sheila, in the late summer of 94, just completely disappeared. Who was onto it? They didn't have a lot of close relationships, I believe. I know that they told different people different things about where they were going. So nobody knew exactly where they were going. I think that there was one friend that knew she was going to be with a man she met online. But yeah. you have to also remember that in 94, meeting anyone online was so... Taboo. So taboo. Like immediately somebody would be like, well, it's probably a serial killer. Yeah. And I it's mean, like, in this case, it, is. it was. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think she was telling people, especially given that her daughter was disabled and everything, I think that people would be like, you're putting not only yourself in this situation, but your vulnerable daughter for many reasons. Whether she was disabled or not, she was vulnerable. She was a teenager. Yeah. She was 15 years old. Yeah. So I think she was avoiding telling people for that reason, but it's also entirely possible that he told her not to tell people. Yeah, so like who discovered first that they were missing? Her landlord. Got it. Okay, when she like didn't pay rent or something. She essentially said, I'm moving and I'm gonna leave soon. And then it was like, boom, they were gone. And they left behind some things. It seems like they had left more in a hurry. Like, we're going to come back for some of those things later. And then they never did. That's unfortunately what happened to Sheila and Debbie. And only a month or so after they disappeared, and really, like I said, very few people even knew they disappeared, the Social Security Administration received a medical report from a Dr. William Bonner. And if that sounds familiar to you, it is because it is from part one, last episode. That was the name of the prison doctor who treated John Robinson and whose wife he stole and killed. We think. We don't know. It's an educated guess that he murdered them. But he disappeared her in any case. He disappeared her. Yes, he disappeared her. So he's now using Dr. William Bonner's name. And he wrote in this letter that, quote, Debbie Faith was now totally disabled and would require complete care for the rest of her life. And that it was his advisement that they up the amount of disability for more care. And here is also a new address where you should be sending the checks. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that that P.O. box where 
the social security checks were going was also the same P.O. box where the real Dr. Bonner was sending his alimony checks. I think I saw on the Dateline episode I watched that he had scammed throughout these checks like something like $80,000. Wow. Before he was caught. Well, John spent that extra money he had fixing up his mobile home. Everyone said that it was very nice. He did a lot of landscaping. Oh, it was fancy. It was fancy. He had all the nice additions. He had all the nice yard stuff going on. He even had a little sign out front that said, Grandpa's place, we spoil grandchildren here. That is terrifying. This <laughs> is so terrifying. <laughs> the weird thing is, is that his kids and grandkids at least from what I know, I don't know if anyone has like broke from what the rest of the family has said, said he was very caring and he was a good grandfather. It's weird. I mean, it's just that compartmentalization. I mean, you'd have to imagine like what part of this is real, like which part of this is a front. Yeah. He also started a magazine for mobile home parks, which was a complete plagiarization of an established publication that already exists. Like just like, Carbon copy. Word for word, like stealing the same pictures. And the established magazine said that they had discovered this, of course, and sent him several cease and desist notices that he apparently put right in the trash and ignored. Oh, my God. And he's like selling advertising on this and selling these magazines, which is hilarious. He also, at this time, so while this is all going on, he creeped out several neighbors. Yes, that's tracks. Is he holding his sign? <laughs> grandchildren spoiled here. It's just like a guy walking around with a shirt that says like free mustache rides. <laughs> Andy's face. You have to, we're on a podcast. You have to tell them how you're feeling. You're just looking at me. Nausea. <laughs> yeah. I would see that was shock and disgust. But a guy with a mustache wearing a shirt that says free mustache rides. Andy's never seen that. I think a lot of you guys are going to tell me you've never seen that. I mean, I've only seen it like once. I'm not saying Where? I see them all the time. Where? I think it was when I was living in San Francisco. That makes sense. <laughs> that tracks. <laughs> but yes, it was creepy. So he would go around and like chummily talk to everyone and try to like cozy up to neighbors. But he was doing things like finding out when women's husbands were out of town. And then when he knew they were out of town, he'd like put his shirt on, <laughs> put the mustache shirt on and walk around and, and bring them a casserole. No, he would just like creepily like hover around outside and like look in their windows and stuff. That's always just so hot. <laughs> it's what every woman wants is when somebody's outside your windows looking in. But yeah, no one was enjoying John Robinson. He's over here like Wilford Brimley creeping everybody out. Wilford Brimley didn't creep me out. I know. Wilford Brimley is lovely. I'm just saying, imagine a guy who looks like Wilford Brimley wearing a free mustache rides t-shirt. Yeah, no, I can't. You can't because Wilford Brimley would never. So he continued his... Creepiness. Online and his victim search. Isabella Luica was a 19-year-old college student. He is in his mid-50s already looking like... 85. Yes. He's not looking good. And Isabella had been born in Poland to scientist parents. And she was born in 1978. And they ended up, I think, fleeing communism. And they taught at Purdue University in Indiana. So that's where she was raised. And she actually eventually matriculated there. So she ended up going to Purdue. Okay. The fuck does matriculated mean? It means starting to attend a university or college, I believe. Jessie's word of the day. <laughs> By all accounts, everyone said she was smart. She had this really unusual style. She's very creative. She's very artistic. So she has these scientist parents. But she had this artistic flair 
She was very goth. So I guess this would be the mid-90s. Yeah. So she's like peak Hot Topic. Yeah. <laughs> but she also made her own clothes. So she wasn't just Hot Topic. She was also going to sew her own Victorian dresses. Yeah, crafty. She's very crafty. She was also fond of velvet dresses. She had like long velvet dresses as well. So she had her own unique sense of style. She had multiple piercings. She was infatuated with the occult. She loved fashion design. She loved dark history. She loved wearing black lipstick. And unfortunately, in her case, in this specific case, she also was really interested in BDSM. Mm -hmm. As a promising student, 19-year-old Isabella shocked everyone when she essentially dropped out of school. So I believe that she was actually between, it was like she had finished her freshman year and she was going into her sophomore year. Okay. And she just never went back. And originally her parents thought that when she left, she said she was going to do an internship, I believe, but they didn't know anything about it. And she was being very private about what was going on. They just thought, you know, this is Isabella. She's a free spirit. She's just doing whatever she's doing for the summer and then she's going to come back and she's going to start school again. So they weren't entirely worried or they didn't even really feel like they had super grounds to be worried. Okay. Until she didn't come back. And that's when they got really concerned about where she was and who she was with. Instead of going back to school, Isabella had become John's companion, for lack of a better word, because she did end up spending a very long time with him. Alive. Alive. We talk about what happened to Sheila and Debbie, and it is unlikely that they survived, I believe, more than a handful of days. Yeah. At most. With Isabella, there was a relationship there. She lived, I think, for almost two years being a part of his life. And at some point, they even went and applied for a marriage license together. Now, he never filed it. Because he could not, because he was still married to Nancy Joe. So that would have just added mm -hmm. bigamy onto all this of rap these, sheet. Yeah, this rap sheet of charges and cons and murders so soon. But yeah, he married her. And because she was living in the Kansas City area for two years, she kind of became friendly with some people. And she said she had a much older husband. So she was considering them married. I think that he probably told her that he had filed it so they were married. Yeah. Like, I'll take care of this. I'll file this for us. Yeah. So she considered him absolutely her husband at this time. He set her up in an apartment. I don't know why there wasn't any questioning about why he didn't sleep over at this apartment or why it wasn't really their apartment or where he went at night. But she's really young. Maybe she didn't question the setup. We can never know exactly what relationship was going on. It seems like she also did briefly work as a graphic artist for his mobile home magazine. And she, while doing that, got on Nancy Joe's radar. And Nancy Joe is not a fan of Isabella's. Yeah, I can see why. Yes. If we're going to give Nancy Joe the benefit of the doubt, she just thinks that her husband has a wandering eye. Yeah. And so having a young, attractive graphic Assistant. artist yeah. that is into these dark tastes of his would probably not be a favorite thing. And interestingly, it seems like, or at least she said, she never engaged in any BDSM type sex with her own husband. Isn't that interesting? I could see that. You could see it's the compartmentalization. Yeah, like, yeah, she's more like Madonna complex. Madonna, yeah, like she's the mother of my children. We don't play that way. He had been married to Nancy for 32 years at the time that he applied for a marriage license using a different middle name, of course. 
what, John Ellis? <laughs> Something like that. So Isabella survived as John's, in quotes, wife for two and a half years. Wow. People knew her mostly from a bookstore that she frequented. She also had a group of younger people that she had met, I think maybe through this bookstore, that played vampire role-playing games. Like They'd go out into the woods and <laughs> pretend to be vampires, apparently. Yeah, totally. However, one day in late 1999, she told the bookstore owner, whom she had become kind of friendly with, that she would be moving away. So she was leaving. She was moving. She was going to be traveling. She did say that potentially her husband might come and send her some books because she wanted to keep frequenting them and, and supporting them in some capacity. They never saw her again. Isabella, who was a very talented artist who was also known for having lovely canvases, like she was a painter, mm -hmm. she did a bunch of stuff, and a very bright young person, was gone. So now her parents have not seen her for two and a half years. Yeah. And they did not start getting super concerned until she'd already been gone for a few months. Yeah. It was when she didn't come back to school. And they said that at first they thought something happened to her before probably before it did, based on appearances people saw of her in the Kansas City area. And they started trying to speak to her only in Polish to see if she would respond. But she was responding in Polish at the beginning, of course. And she even used like a nickname that they had given her sister and like they thought nobody knew about. So eventually she just said to them, I'm married. I moved on. I don't want to be a part of your life. In English. And I think she said that in English. Yeah. And then when they tried to communicate back to her in Polish, she would respond in Polish, but only in very easy to find phrases like, I'm okay, I'm fine, or whatever the Polish equivalent, I love you. It wasn't like somebody who is obviously a native speaker of Polish would say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was just like these little phrases that he probably found online. Yeah. So they had been trying to find her this whole time. I think that they might have even hired somebody to look for her because they did not know where she was at yeah. this point. And then they received an email in April of 2000 where she said that she and her husband are traveling. She said that she was in China. This is in English, too. And that she was going to be learning deglazing methods in China. And she was happy. And... She just wanted to be essentially left alone and they didn't have to worry about her. Like she's out. She's living her best life. She's working. They really did not know what to expect because they would intermittently get these emails from their daughter that didn't necessarily seem like they were from their her, daughter. Yeah. But there was just really nothing they could go on because anyone would say there's no evidence that anything has happened to her. Yeah. And she's an adult. And she's an adult. And that was the whole thing. And that we've run into this in many of his victims yeah. already. It would be many years before Isabella's parents' hopes were dashed for good, unfortunately. During this relationship with Isabella, John had also purchased some property in Lacine, Kansas. It was about 16 and a half acres, had a few outbuildings and a pond, and was this farm that he had always dreamed of. He also put a trailer on the property for God knows what. And this is like the place that he had lied about having. Yeah. This is now his farm. While John was involved with Isabella, he was also still in communication with other women, including submissives that he built out of their life savings. So guys, this would be an incredibly long podcast if I could go into every woman that he abused. There was 
one woman in the John Glatt book who narrowly survived probably being killed because she ended up waking up ahead of him and leaving because she got a bad feeling. <gasps> yep. But there was also women that he would get to sign these. They're called slave contracts. And we now use the term submissive, but I might dip into saying like slave or master again because this was the vernacular that he was using at the time. And they would say essentially like, I give myself to you, my whole body, my finances. It was a contractual agreement that he was in control of these women. There was one woman that he stole her entire retirement fund and she was so embarrassed about it that she didn't want to report him. But later on, she ended up, and this all comes together with the later investigation, because when you withdraw your 401k, you get taxed on it. And she could not pay the taxes, and she was trying to explain it away, but she was like, I don't know what to do. He was sometimes just conning women as well. Yeah, yeah. So we don't really know, and I can tell you guys I have been living in this case for a while, and I do not know why he killed some people and why he did not kill other people. I don't think we're meant to know. I don't think we're meant to know either. There just seems like there's very little rhyme or reason. Yeah. It was just something about him and his peccadillos. Or could have been like his temper at the time. It exactly. Something we, set him off. Yeah, like, we have no idea. But yeah. there was also a lot of women that were being conned by him from the internet at this time as well. Who were lucky. Who were lucky comparatively, absolutely. Yeah. And there was another woman in his life named Barbara. So Barbara and John had been teenage friends. They had met at some point. When he was 19 and she was 15 years old, she was originally from Canada. So I'm not entirely sure how or when they met as teenagers. But this had been, sounds like a real chap in Nancy Joe's ass because it seems like she was kind of like the one who got away with totally, him. Totally, yeah. And he had been in touch with her for some time. I guess they had fallen out of touch probably when he was in prison for six years. And she said that he reconnected with her in 1993. And essentially said that, hey, we haven't talked for like years and years. So my life has been totally crazy. And also he sent this letter to her parents and saying, could you forward? Because I guess he had like her old parents address from being pen pals or something. So she is living with her third husband in London. When she gets this forwarded letter from her old flame, John Robinson, and he says that his brother died. And that he adopted his brother's children. Okay. So he's a single dad of really these children who are his nieces and nephews, apparently. And he said that he was working for the CIA. Oh, they love that. That old chestnut. They love that. That has to be a chapter in our book. <laughs> it really does. Red flag. It's a little chapter. He tells you he works for the CIA. That's like the number one red flag. He's not going to tell you if he actually works for the, <laughs> for CIA. the CIA, especially in a letter. Yes. So they're talking about a letter. So he's saying, so I think that he, when he got back in contact with Barbara, it might not have actually even been for sexual reasons. Okay. Because he was saying, I've had this really difficult life. I'm working for the CIA and I need you to help me with some missions. Like, obviously you live in London, so that's great, but you probably travel around Europe as well. It's so easy when you're just already over there. She said, yes, I do. And he said, okay, well, I need you to do some covert CIA work for me. I need you to, no questions asked, mail some letters for me from various places on various dates. And this is, of course, 
to make it look like Beverly Bonner and Isabella Lewicka is traveling. So he's having Barbara mail these letters for him. This is so crazy to me, guys. He's doing all of this with snail mail for the most part because she was communicating with him via letters at this point. They do end up moving over to email and talking daily on email. But, like, think about what kind of hell this man could have wrought on Facebook. No, I know. It's so scary. It's so scary to think. And, I mean, I think that the whole birth of these chat rooms and these internet predators kind of was a cautionary tale when social media launched. I'm sure it was similar but not as devastating because there was at least some sort of guardrails in place. But it's, again, anytime there's a birth of a new technology, you have to look into how are people going to abuse this? Mm -hmm. It gives me chills to think about this man on social media, which is why he needs no access to (laughs) the, to the, the Facebooks. Yes. But yeah, so he's like reaching back out to her and they're now communicating via email. And she is falling back in love with him. She thinks he's exciting. There must have been some nostalgia factor here. And he convinced her to leave her third husband in London and come live with him. On the ranch? On the ranch. Now, there was evidence that wife Nancy did have knowledge of this relationship. So it seems like she was a little jealous of Isabella. We don't know exactly what she knew about that relationship. But we do know that she absolutely knew about Barbara and hated her. Okay. And she tried. She had somehow found out that they were communicating. And she wrote Barbara a letter before Barbara moved to Kansas and said, I'm John Robinson's wife. I have been married to him for a very long time. Here is a timeline of our life together. These are when our children were born. We are still living together. I've seen some emails or something between the two of you. And there is, you need to stop this because nothing is going to happen. He's my husband. And so Barbara immediately emailed John and said, what the hell is this about? And he said that Nancy was simply a woman that he had hired to babysit his children, who of course are biologically his brother's children, when they were young and that she had become obsessed with him and that she was now babysitting his now grown children's children, so his grandchildren. And he thought it was going to be fine because she obviously cared so much about the family that he thought it would be fine. But like, honestly, she was getting really, really crazy attached and stalking him and has all these delusions of their relationship together so that he's probably going to have to get a restraining order. On his wife. On his wife. He must have been so convincing because Barbara said, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. This all totally makes sense. (laughs) I'm going to still move to Kansas City. He said CIA. Which I think it was Kansas City, Missouri, but he also has the farm in Lacine, which is in Kansas. So guys, I am sorry because I know I'm going to get some comments like, you know that Kansas City's in Missouri, not Kansas, but he also was in Kansas. So it's very confusing. (laughs) It's just mostly Kansas things. Let's just say mostly in Kansas. (laughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur like Andy or part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, or of course, cool vintage finds like me, Shopify has you covered. 
The funniest thing about Shopify is that we have been doing ads for them forever and we never run out of good things to say about them. <laughs> that is very true. It is so true. <laughs> Shopify is definitely the only way that I could ever do what I do for both Ririku and Love Murder, being able to integrate apps and have everything all in one place so I can check off my list every day and get everything done. It also just makes us look so much more professional. Absolutely. Did you know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, as we both now know, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. Tis the month of love for a little bit longer. <laughs> and there's nothing I love more than comfortable shapewear. Support for today's episode comes from Honey Love. Honey Love has revolutionized compression technology so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective and slimming shapewear. You'll immediately feel and see the difference. Plus, their shapewear features lingerie-inspired design details that you'll want to show off. For a limited time only, you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com lovemurder. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com lovemurder. Oh man, I love Honey Love because I really do feel most comfortable in a nice formal dress or even just in anything that's a little bit more form-fitting. If I have something compressing me underneath, it just streamlines everything. It makes me feel more confident. I'm not thinking about where I might be bulging out. But the problem is that not all shapewear is created the same. And that means that I'm trying to eliminate bulges. But I think y'all know that sometimes you try on some shapewear and it creates bulges. Yeah. And this is absolutely not the case with Honey Love. It is my 100% absolute favorite shapewear line, and I just love everything that they do. Yeah. When talking about shapewear, Honey Love's best-selling superpower short is the go-to. It has targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas where you want more support and areas that you need less compression. Their Signature X targets and sculpts your midsection without squeezing your natural curves. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. Which also means that it doesn't make your booty flat, <laughs> which a lot of compression shorts do. <laughs> the Superpower Short is helping ladies everywhere sculpt and smooth from stomach to thigh by offering just the perfect amount of compression. And you won't have to worry about it rolling down, which is a nightmare. It's definitely unheard of in shapewear, and thanks to flexible boning that's hidden in the side seams, it just works. This piece is also a booty lifter. Not, not only not flattening, the boost bands on the back of the thigh give your bottom amazing shape. You know we've all been here, struggling to take off a tight piece of shapewear with a bathroom line out the door. The Superpower Short has a 100% cotton gusset, so you can skip the extra undies. Plus, it has a convenient opening in the panty area for super easy bathroom. No costume change required. Now, that is what we call easy access. Yeah, if you already have to take off, like, your full outfit because you're wearing a jumpsuit, like, you don't want to have to deal with the shapewear as well. No. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. Honey Love has more than just sculpt wear. They have incredibly comfortable bras, tanks, and leggings for everyday support. 
Honey Love is just as easy to put on as it is to take off. Shapewear shouldn't be hard. Their products make you look good and feel good. Whether it's for a wedding, event, or an everyday boost of confidence, Honey Love is the perfect plus one. Treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash lovemurder. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash lovemurder. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support Love Murder and tell them it was us. Treat yourself to Honey Love because you deserve it. So she moved to Kansas City in July of 1999. Together, she and John rented an apartment. Now she was, I think she was a remote worker already, like so before, ahead of the times wow, over here. Way yeah, ahead of her time. And she had mostly European and British clients for the most part. So she made her own money, but they co-signed on an apartment. They opened a joint banking account. And she even allegedly landed a hand at his magazine, which I do not know how this was all going down and if his wife Nancy knew about this or what was going on at this point. Well, he needs a new graphic designer. Apparently. Of course, now the magazine, the mobile home magazine, is just a cover for his real job. Hydrogrow? And the CIA. Hydrogrow is a great CIA cover. Honestly, Hydrogrow would be a great CIA cover. Yeah. (laughs) The hydroponic plant situation. So eventually, I guess they like moved into this apartment and then he moved her into this duplex. And when he moved her into this duplex, it was full of things like belongings from somebody else already. And she thought it was very weird because they did not seem like things that he was interested in. It was like Anne Rice vampire novels and books about the occult. There was a Polish mortar and pestle. There was a big, beautiful, impressionistic painting that John claimed he had painted and he had even signed his name to. So he just signed his name over her painting. Yes, over Isabella's painting. And she said that Barbara would later talk about this and say that she thought that the whole situation was weird. Like, whose stuff was this? Because it didn't seem like his. But she really loved the painting because he basically made it sound like he painted it for her. Can you imagine finding all this out later? But Barbara survives. I figured when you said she talked about it later. Yes. So she soon realized that life in Kansas was not what it was cracked up to be. So they were supposed to be getting married. She did not want to be in Kansas anymore. She did not want to be in Kansas anymore. She was not living on some sort of ranch. She was living in a duplex and he was never spending the night with her. She said that she was there for, I think, around nine months. (gasps) Nine months she's living there. And even though they had allegedly moved into this apartment together, he would only stop by and have sex with her, essentially, and then leave. Ew. And so he wasn't even spending the night there for, like, really. And so she was feeling very skeptical about what was going on and what was happening. And she even said that they never went out together. Like, he'd be like, no, I'll just come see you at the duplex or at the apartment. In one account, I think it was the John Glad account, I read that they only actually went out together once. They had breakfast in like a diner at some point. And then another time, he took her over state lines to buy a stun gun. Where is it legal to buy a stun gun? Missouri? It was in Missouri, yeah. So I think he actually predominantly lived in the Olathe area, which is on the Kansas side of Kansas City. (laughs) Gosh, you guys, it's confusing. (laughs) Again. Why aren't you questioning whether a CIA dude needs your help buying a stun gun? 
Also, if you guys are hanging out for nine months and he only takes you out one time, you got to go. Even if he wasn't murdering, that's – You got to go. That's because you got to get okay. out. Yeah. Even if you only go out one time the entire guys, month. Guys, it gets, like, that's it, not it gets so much worse, Annie. No. Are you ready? No, I'm not ready. Okay, so things really came to a head when Barbara physically ran into John and Nancy Joe at Costco. Why was Barbara going to Costco if she just lives by herself? She We went with a friend. So she had made a girlfriend, and I guess that's a thing to do. It was exciting. To go to Costco. Yeah, I guess they were just chilling at Costco. She said that she was walking down an aisle, and she saw John. Now, obviously, she didn't know who Nancy Joe was. Well, she knew who she was. She didn't know what she looked like. Exactly. And so she saw John literally walking down. He had a cart, and she's staring at him, and he is not looking at her. He's looking like he doesn't even know who she is. She said that they were so close that John and Nancy Joe's cart could have run over her foot. And while she's looking at him like, are you kidding me? He just walks right by her as if he didn't even see her at all. I mean, what else is he going to do? So she is obviously pissed. Her head's spinning. She goes home. She emails him. But she does know that's his wife. Well, now she's putting it all together. But listen to this. She said, I just saw you at Costco. That woman obviously is your wife. That woman wasn't a crazy liar. And he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm in Russia. I'm in Russia. I'm not even in the country, Barbara. I am in Russia on On a a mission. Secret mission. You stupid B word for getting all up in my face when I'm in Russia saving democracy. She's like, what? Guys, it gets so insane. She just, like, she ended up finding the address that Nancy Joe had written her the letter from and, like, going there, and she saw that John's truck was parked out there, and she's like, okay, now I know you're really married. And he's like, no, my daughter borrows my truck, and that woman, like, still watches my daughter's kids, like I told you. So this all is still on the up and up, and why are you stalking me? He's like, I'm eating bear soup by the Kremlin right now. (laughs) How dare you think that I'm in my home? (laughs) So she believes him, though. Like, all of this is she's still, like, believing him. But she's also like, this is just not working out. She also said that there was some sort of currency exchange that wasn't working for her because she had clients that were in Europe. And she's like, I'm just not feeling this whole situation. I'm going to actually move back to Canada, which is what her nationality was. She was from Canada. Okay. I'm moving back to Canada. I'm sure she probably had to because— Is he Canadian? No, he didn't marry her, so I'm sure she had to. There was probably some citizenship stuff going on here, too. So she's like, I want to still keep, like, in touch, and maybe we'll find a way to be together, but I'm moving back to Canada. And he's like, great idea. I love that idea. I love that for us. And so the thought process behind why he let her live is because she was saying she was going to establish a residence for them in Canada. And so when the heat got hot, when he started thinking that law enforcement might be on to him, he thought he could maybe escape to Canada. But if he's already in Russia, then I don't. (laughs) Yeah, so she's back in Canada, but they're still in touch. And she also allegedly did not ever do any BDSM sex play with him. Interesting. Yeah, I think she was just like a trip town. Memory memory lane. lane. Yes, there was something there. I mean, it, it definitely seemed like she was the one that Nancy Joe had her eye on. Yeah. And was concerned about. But also, this guy is just like a straight-up king of gaslighters. <laughs> I was in Russia. Unbelievable. Okay, so 
they were making plans for John to move to Canada at some point in 2000. That was the idea. She's still open to that. Yep. So even though this sounds like a disaster to me in every capacity, she was still thinking that he was going to end up coming. And like, maybe it'll be better when he's in Canada rather than she's like at the duplex alone in Kansas City. Yeah. Well, John would not make it to Canada. Just so you guys know. Huzzah. Eh? Hey. Unfortunately, though, John being brought to justice would not come fast enough to save the life of Suzette Troughton. And Suzette is where we started this very long story when we talked about Suzette online and her friend, Laura Remington. Lauren Gore. Yes, Lauren the Gorian BDSM. So we talked a little bit about Suzette at the beginning, but now we're going to go back and we're going to talk about her more in depth. Suzette was a small-town girl from Monroe, Michigan. She was born on April 13th, 1972, which I also found was interesting because Lisa Stasi's birthday was April 11th. She was the youngest of five kids, and from the very beginning, Suzette had a fearlessness and this incredible embrace of life, but almost to an unsettling degree. When somebody is so brave and reckless and willing to embrace life and just go out there and do it, but to the point where you're like, hey, I just love you and I want you to be safe. It seemed like she might have not had that self-preservation. She just was, like, living life fully. Like our toddlers. I honestly really thought of our toddlers a lot about this. Just the absolute lack of fear. They said that she was just like that immediately as, like, a little kid. Yeah. She loved horseback riding. Her mom said that because she was the youngest of five, that contributed. Because whatever the eldest kids were doing, she was like, I can do it too. Yeah, and she's, like, two. And she's two. Yeah, she can't do it. But she would go and try. And she was not deterred by failure. Let's just not break your neck, though. That was the challenge in raising yeah. Suzette, was she was just brave and strong. She loved animals. She loved horseback riding. She especially loved dogs. She was particularly attached to these two Pekingese dogs that she had named Harry and Pika. They were like the loves of her life and her children. She could be stubborn. She was independent. She loved fiercely. And there were a couple things in her early life that caused emotional scars for life. It sounds like her parents divorce when she was 11, which was their final divorce, had been very hard on her. But the John Douglas book said that her parents were married and divorced three times. There was a lot of strife in the home, I would imagine, if, from my understanding, the same couple getting married and divorced three times. Yeah. Tumultuous. It's tumultuous. So she had a tumultuous upbringing, and I guess that her parents' end, real split, when she was 11 years old, broke her heart. She would also later tell a friend of hers that she had been sexually assaulted as a child. So there was some child sexual abuse that had happened. She was known to be this big-hearted, loving, kind person that also had some emotional and behavioral issues. And after a very bad breakup, Suzette had even shot herself in the stomach, I believe in front of her mother. Fortunately, it was non-fatal. It was simply a flesh wound. How they described it was that she did have a large scar. So I'm wondering if it was like the angle of it like more skimmed the stomach than went in. that was like a guaranteed slow, painful death. I mean, it is in the Westerns. I mean, I feel like that's – she might have shot it in a way that it almost pierced the skin essentially rather than going in. You know what I mean? So scary. One of her sisters said that – who was a lot older. I think she had one of her sisters like 15 years old or something. (laughs) that it didn't seem like it was a true, like she wanted to end her life, that it was a cry for attention. It happened, I think, in front of her mother. So she needed support and love. 
And she was exceptionally close to her mother. She described herself as a mama's girl. She was close to her mother right until the end of her life. Suzette found BDSM online in the early to mid-90s, and she found a local dom. So she had, it sounds like this guy was like a boyfriend slash dom. There was some sort of emotional relationship. It wasn't just a physical situation. And he was a cop, actually, or former cop. And they were very close to each other. So he showed her the ropes, I'm guessing literally and figuratively. And she was particularly interested in Gorian BDSM, which we talked about at the beginning of last episode, which seems like a very extreme form of BDSM, where essentially the submissive cedes all control in all ways of their life. There's no safe words. There's no boundaries. They're essentially somebody else's property with no say in how they treat you. But of course, I guess it has this like sci-fi world built around it. So it's not entirely clear like what part of this was so exciting for Suzette other than the fact that she was very tired of life by the time she met John and she was intrigued by the idea of a man just taking care of her yeah. in every every way. So she met and bonded with Lore in the summer of 1996 and together they chatted, they role-played, they even served master's doms together, but it was usually especially for Lore just online. So it was something where they would like all be in a chat room together and they'd be playing these yeah, roles. Yeah, like role playing online. Yes, yeah. exactly. Which has like a level of protection. Well, I think that's what Lore's bag was. Yeah. Like she was a married mother and I think that this was an interest, a hobby, a titillation, a form of escape. But she loved the cover of the internet. Yeah. The safety of that layer. She was concerned about Suzette because Suzette seemed to want to take that to the real world. Of course, yeah. And that made her concerned. But the two women got along extremely well. They also made another friend named Tammy Taylor. And these three women were all identified as submissives. They liked to be, they called it slaves, like co-submissives to the same dom. Yeah. They liked to role play together. They had little nicknames for one another. And it seemed like in some ways they looked out for one of them. And this is a very interesting relationship that kind of defies any sort of proper definition because it was true that there was definitely some sexual things that happened between all of these three women, although they all identified as predominantly straight. So they're kind of like lovers, but at the same time, they like have this sister energy and they're best friends. And it's just like, it's like this relationship that I think unless you're in that very specific situation doesn't really make much sense. Yeah. It's hard to define. That's it. So it's like this deep, meaningful relationship, especially I feel like maybe it's because I mostly heard from Laura's perspective, but in her interviews with John Glatt, but also with um, the John Douglas book. It can't make much sense to people who don't have a relationship like that. But yeah. it, to them, it's like a friend, but deeper. A sexual partner, but somehow like deeper in some ways as well. So this is this totally different relationship we didn't understand. And Laura became especially concerned about Suzette when she decided to move to Kansas to work for a mysterious dom known online as JR. I think there were some other sources that said he was known as JT as well. And he had changed his um, screen name which is good, although his new one is Erudite Master. Erudite meaning deeply learned. Ooh. It's just so pretentious. It is. Deeply learned master? Gross. 
So that's his new name that he's going with. That he gave himself. That he gave himself. That he decided to christen himself with. Suzette had confided in her new virtual dom, JR, that she wanted to go back to school to become a nurse because she was working at this time as a home health aide, which she was really, really good at. They said that, that she was amazingly empathetic, but she was having a really hard time because she was doing this job that's incredibly hard because she did work with an elderly population. It sounds like it was almost hospice level. Mm-hmm. So that's very emotionally taxing. It's very physically taxing. And even though she was gifted at it, it was just hard work. And she also wasn't licensed enough to make really good money. So she's getting like the lowest level pay for still what's an incredible amount of hard work. And to make ends meet, she was still pulling shifts at a fast food restaurant. I think it was like a big boy. Remind me, does she have kids or no? She doesn't. And that was also just a... Just doggies, yeah. She has her doggies who are her kids. Yeah. Because I think that... And I don't know if it was with the guy who is like her boyfriend slash dom, but she had actually suffered a number of miscarriages. Oh, really? So she has been having a hard time. She is in this emotionally taxing job that she does enjoy and she's very good at, but she wants to go back to school so that she can get licensed or registered and end up having a better salary and a better career. But she is struggling. She's in debt. She's working nights at the fast food restaurant. She had suffered from these miscarriages. It's unclear exactly what the terms of her relationship with her dom was. She's just having a hard time. And she's exhausted by life. And so at this point, she meets JR, who says that he is this wealthy ranch owner, sends her the same picture that Walter Brimley And she always kind of liked older guys. I think she was about 28 or 29 at this point. But she had always been attracted, actually, to that type of guy. So this was not a problem for her. She liked that look. Yeah. She was into it. And when they're talking about their lives, he says that he had inherited multiple companies from his father, who he called Papa John. The pizza. (laughs) Yes. Like, do you think he was just... Like, he got a flyer in the mail. And he's like, ah, uh, Papa John. That's rude. <laughs> it is rude. So he said that his father, Papa John, had retired and that he had just inherited all these businesses and wealth from him. Were they pizza businesses? He did not say that they were pizza businesses. I do not know. I do not think. He was a, a well-known and wealthy Kansas City businessman. Got it. Okay. With many Kansas City businesses. So he said, you know... My dad's not doing so well. He's elderly. He has uh, some conditions. So I actually need a home health care worker for him. And we already have kind of a good thing going on with our sub-dom situation. It would be interesting to explore this. While you care for my dad. In person while you take care of my dad. And there was another thing that she had said she'd always wanted to travel and she'd never gotten the opportunity. And he's like, well, I really want to take my dad places before he passes. So we will go to extraordinary places. We will take trips. We're going to get on my yacht and we're going to go to Hawaii and then on to Hong Kong. So he is selling her this bill of goods. And Lore is saying, girl, this is way too good to be true. Especially when he tells her that he's going to be paying her $65,000 a year, which is more like $120,000 in 2024 money. Wow. So she's going to be making six figures. She was barely scraping by before. Yep. She's going to be traveling. Like she's applying for a passport. She's so excited about this opportunity. And 
he is portraying himself as a very wealthy single man. So there's a chance here that she could just be taken care of for life. So Lore and I think the woman who owned the home health care business that she had been previously working for both say this C was too good to be true. Like the person who works in home health care is like nobody gets paid that. And Laura is like, I really don't like this idea. The job seems too good. And everyone also said that Suzette was more interested in the job really than like the guy. It was just like, she even was like, oh my gosh, if I get to have that type of money for even one year, I'll be set up. Yeah. Given that, that was more than three times what she was making a year with both jobs. He just knows the right thing to say. He gets all of his information from them and he knows exactly what they need. Pressure points to yeah. push to give them what they want. Yeah. So she was talking to her mom about this. So she, where Suzette differs from a lot of these people is that bigness of Suzette, that no fear. Yeah. She's not afraid to talk about this stuff. Yeah. She's not afraid of what people think of her. She has these close relationships. She's close to her mom. And while I do not think her mom knew about the BDSM stuff, she was honest with her mother about a lot of other things in her life, including whether or not she should take this job. This is not somebody who... Honestly, it reminds me a lot of me. Like, I have a very hard time hiding things, not even just from people I'm close to. <laughs> I'm like an open book, you know? Yeah. And so she was like living this way. And so people who advised her and they said, you have to go out and visit him and meet him in person, see like where this job is yeah. and what the deal is. Like, you can't just, you know, if we're talking about like Sheila and her daughter, Debbie, just was like sight unseen. Yeah, I know. And, and just left. Just took off and just took the plunge. And so even though Suzette was this kind of adventurous type of person, she still said, I want to come out. I want to see where I'd be living, where I'd be working, what the deal is, see if we get along, meet your dad, do the whole thing. Now, this is a problem for John because his father's been dead for 10 years. Because he doesn't have a Papa John. He does not have a Papa John. He's uh, just a side of garlic but they dip. <laughs> just a side of garlic dip, oh God. But they said that they think he hired actors or somehow persuaded other people in his life to play roles because everyone who knew Suzette, including her mother, said that she came home from this visit and said it was amazing. She had gone in the fall of 1999. I think she had gone one additional Unreal. time before moving. And her mom said that she said a limo met her at the airport, picked her up, took her to a hotel because she's obviously just staying there. But he showed her where he lived, which was a mansion that he absolutely did not live in, of course. And that she had met his father, which we know that can't be. And that she'd also met other women who had worked for him and said, oh, he's a great boss. You would love it. Like she had vetted him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So either Suzette was trying to make people in her life feel better and she was making this up or he really did. I feel like he would have done that just to like pull out all the stops to like make sounds... sure that she comes. Yeah. And we really do not know exactly what he was getting out of Suzette because unlike some of the women that he killed, there was no clear financial motivation. So there was just maybe it was something about Suzette. We don't know. But he worked very hard to get her to come out there. And meanwhile, at the same time, Lore was telling her, I don't know about this because I think you're going to end up hooking up with this guy. Yeah. She was saying, if you, you know, I know you met him in this circumstance, but like if you're going to have a business relationship with him, you cannot also be his submissive. And she said, no, you know, even though this is how we met, we're cutting off that side of our relationship that's just not happening anymore. 
but it was a lie. So at first, Suzette was actually lying to Lore and saying, like, they weren't having these sexual relationships. They weren't having this dom-sub situation, but they absolutely were, including the first time she visited. There are pictures and videos of sexual acts between the two of them. So she could have maybe been exaggerating a little bit. Who knows? We don't know exactly what happened. I think based on what I read, they believe he really did do all those things. Yeah. He could have done some of them. Yes. He really did try to scam her in every way he possibly could. However, we know that she was just trying to not scare Lore as far as that relationship went. From the John Glatt book, which John Glatt, by the way, says this as its absolute fact, said that she was introduced to his elderly father, which cannot be true. She was introduced to a woman who claimed to be his wife. So I guess he wasn't presenting himself as single. He was, she was just going to be like a mistress. I don't know. Several young women who claimed to have worked for him as nurses, saying he was a wonderful boss. He showed her a furnished apartment in Overland Park that she could live in while they were home from their travels, but they'd mostly be traveling. While she was in Kansas, she officially became his submissive, allowing him to photograph them both naked and various sexual positions. Later, she would email those pictures to friends, boasting about how good he was as a master and lover. No. But although Suzette enjoyed being his submissive, it was the high-paying job she was the most interested in. That's what John Glass said. So she gets home from this trip, and I think there was one other, like, quick trip that she made as well, which she's paying for, of yeah. course. And she tells her mother and everyone else that I am going to be doing a one-year contract with him. So I'm going to work with him for one year. I'm going to get paid the modern-day equivalent of $120,000. I am going to get to travel. And whatever it is, I can do it for one year. And then after that, I'm basically set. And what am I losing here? Yeah. Either it works out and it's great and it continues to work out or our relationship progresses or it really doesn't work out. And then I'm in no worse a situation than I was when this started, moving back in with my mom. And now I have a lot more money. Obviously, there was one other worse situation that she was not even contemplating. It's wild that she didn't think that at all. But Laura did. Laura did. I don't know if Laura immediately got the feeling that there was something wrong about this man or if she was just concerned about Suzette in general and getting in too deep or losing the business opportunity if it had ever been real in Laura's mind because of a messy personal relationship. Okay. I think she was just in general feeling very hesitant and not really feeling like this man was trustworthy, whether or not he was a killer or yeah. not. So she ended up deciding to take the job at the beginning of 2000. And she now had to wait for him to say when she could move. And she set out in her car with most of her belongings, her computer. She had like a desktop computer that she literally like took apart and like yeah. put in her car. Her two tiny little dogs. Harry and Pika, and she arrived in Kansas City on Valentine's Day 2000. Whoa. And right away, very similar to Barbara, only a lot different in many ways, everything was not what she was expecting. Yeah. We're not getting the limo. We're not getting the fancy apartment that was already furnished that she was supposed to be moving into. So he tells her when she arrives to go to a hotel it was kind of like an extended stay. I think it was called like the guest suites or something. Okay. And he says, oh, the apartment's actually not ready for you. Sorry. I have another employee that's still moving out. So you can't move in there. You have to stay in the hotel. 
And it's basically, it was like a extended stay motel kind of place. And he's not having her go to work. She's there for a couple of weeks staying in this motel. And he's showing up and having BDSM style sex with her. And she's like, aren't I supposed to be caring for your dad? What's going on? She was emailing her friends saying she was bored. She was going out of her head. Her friends were like, why don't you go out and like find a place to have a drink or something? Yeah. And she's like, I just don't, I don't never know when he's going to show up. So I don't want to like be drunk or like have him show up in the morning. And I'm like passed out, hung over. So I'm not going to do that. And the worst part of it was at the beginning, and I don't know if she like moved hotels or they just found out she had the dogs. But at the beginning, she was like hanging out with her dogs and she yeah. was like braiding their hair and taking them for walks and doing stuff with them. But then either this hotel found out about the fact that she had the dogs and it wasn't allowed or they he moved her for some reason into a different place that didn't allow pets. So now she had to take her pets, her babies, to a dog kennel to leave them because the hotel or motel was like, we will kick you right out mm-hmm. if you have these dogs. So now she's like spending her days going to the kennel to visit her dogs because they can't stay with her. So this is just not going well. She, at this point, was honest with Laura about some parts of this, being like, she was still, like, trying to have a positive feeling about all this, saying, like, yeah, you know, I am sleeping with him, but you know me, like, what I have a normal-style boss, like, what I have a normal-style life, like, that's, you know, that's not me, and I'm really into him. He's really hot. He does it for me. Like, this is my thing. So she liked his whole vibe for whatever reason, or at least she said this to Laura. But she did also admit that she was a little disillusioned by what was going on. She was bored. She was somebody who had a lot of energy and a lot of spirit and wanted to work and had been working around the clock pretty much her whole life. Yeah. So she's like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like wondering, did I sell myself to the highest bidder? Like, what am I doing here if I'm not working? She actually thought that. Yes. She said that in like there was one melancholy email in which she was writing to Laura and being like, maybe this wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And Laura's like, I know, but they were to tell you, I told you so. Yeah. And so they were trying to make plans for Laura to come out to Kansas City to see her. But (laughs) at the same time, she was like, well, I don't know how long I'm going to be here because we are supposed to start traveling soon. And that's what's going on. Mm. So Suzette was excited when John told her that they would finally be going abroad on March 1st. So she arrived on Valentine's Day and it's just been a couple weeks of her just going out of her head. And them having sex and him videotaping it. And this comes up later. And losing her dogs. And losing her dogs. But she is going to get the dogs back. The dogs are coming on the yacht with her. The yacht? Yeah. Well, they're supposed to basically, they're going to be driving from Kansas City to California, where they will be getting on a yacht and they will be sailing to Hawaii and then Hong Kong and then Australia, I think, or something like that. Or some, whatever, whatever version of those three places that makes sense. (laughs) But those were the three places she was talking about going. So she tells Laura very excitedly that they have plans, like she's going to pack up her stuff because they're going to put it into storage. She's finally moving out of the hotel, that she's going to go get her dogs, and that she is going to go see his farm before she leaves. Meanwhile, she didn't tell anyone this, but we will later find out that one of her jobs, one of the tasks that he must have given her, was to first sign 30 blank pieces of paper and provide the names and addresses of all of her friends and relatives because that's a totally normal request of your employer. 
Just like normal yacht proceedings, you know? Yes, you have to sign 30 blank pieces of paper before you can set foot. Like, take off your shoes yep. and sign 30 blank pieces of paper. You can also put those, like, footy covers on the shoes yes. you can pick. Yeah, so I think she was talking to, there was another woman, and I don't know if it was Tammy. It might have been Tammy, but it might have been somebody else. And she was like, okay, well, I'm going to break down my computer now and put it into storage, but I'll try to, like, find an internet cafe along my way and, like, keep you updated. And that, I believe, was the last time that anyone ever heard from the real Suzette. So on March 1st, the day that Suzette checked out of this motel and believed that she was, and they did, they ended up going over to the kennel and getting the dogs. And he even got, John Robinson, like, got in a fight with the kennel about the cost because it was, like, $400 or something because she'd been there for two weeks. And he was, like, mad at them for boarding the dogs there. Well, they were not going to be boarded there for much longer because that same day that they were removed from the premises and their beloved human, Suzette, disappeared, Animal Control received a call that two well-groomed and seemingly well-cared-for Pekingese dogs were running loose around a mobile home park. Huh. It happened to be the Santa Barbara Estates the same mobile home park that Nancy Joe Robinson managed. Now, apparently, and I'm not sure about it at the time, this particular county euthanized dogs if they hadn't been, like, claimed or adopted within a week or two. Yeah. It was, like, a county rule. And fortunately, both Pika and Harry were adopted into two separate but two loving homes. So they found families. Thank goodness. I think one of them was, like, rescued literally, like, the night before they were supposed to be euthanized. There's some saving grace there because we know that that's what Suzette would have wanted for her babies to be okay. And honestly, they, they're like a little bit of a clue later on. Harry and Pika are a-okay, at least physically. They must be very confused about what is going on with yeah. their lives, obviously. And then the very next day, so we're talking March 2nd, Laura begins to receive emails from Suzette that just didn't seem quite right. So there was a few days that she is exchanging emails with Suzette where she's not really thinking anything's off, but some of these things start stacking up. Almost right away, first of all, Suzette was pushing her dom, JR, who's supposed to be her boss, on lore, saying, you should really be also serving him. He's an amazing master. He is so good in bed. He's incredible. Like You should have your own one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. This is not uncommon for them to have this type of relationship with other people, but there was things that she was picking out in these messages. Like, for instance, Suzette had never before used the word master in all capital letters. And every time this person who's writing as Suzette says master, they're saying it in all capitals, which Suze had never done before. Okay. And also speaking of Suze, she started signing off all of her emails, love Suze or hug Suze. And that wasn't what they called each other. They had these very special, specific, submissive slash slave names that they, like, nicknamed each other. And, okay. And they used it only for one another. So she had never signed off, like, love Sue's. Yeah. So this is weird. Now, Laura at the beginning is just kind of curious. She's starting to get the feeling that something bad may have happened, but she doesn't know exactly what. So she's playing along. So she starts being like, okay, yeah, like, I'm into this. And she's talking to Suzette like she's Suzette, even though she doesn't think it's Suzette. And she's talking to JR, going along with, let's just pretend everything's on the up and up just to, like, not alarm anyone. But then she started getting alarmed because it seemed like he started not keeping track of who he was responding as. 
So she'd ask Suzette a question, and then JR would respond in a different email. So it's clear he's losing track of what's going on. He also seems to drop the ball on trying to create two different writing styles. So like the JR emails are also using master in all capitals. So she's picking up on all the stuff. It just seems like it's very clearly the same two people. And she thought what was potentially going on at this point was that JR was sexually trafficking her or had somehow sold her. And she believed that Suzette was still alive, that he had just done something to her. And so she was going to have to figure out what and how. Yeah. So Lore ended up pulling Tammy into the investigation, posing as another friend of hers looking for a dom. And they're comparing notes. They are comparing all the phone numbers that they get because sometimes he wants to do phone sex. I think that also Suzette had given her mom a number for John at some point. So they end up like, I think she tried to call the police and at first there wasn't any interest, but then they literally got in contact with her old dom, the police officer or ex-police officer from Michigan and said, she's gone. She's writing these emails, but it doesn't seem like it's her. We're really nervous. Can you trace all these phone numbers? Yes. And so they're like on the case right now. And he finds out that all of the numbers are associated with John Edward Robinson. Meanwhile, Carol, Suzette's mother, was receiving letters that felt wrong to her. Now, Carol's not online, so she's not getting emails. She's getting letters. Yep. First of all, one thing she noticed was that she was getting letters that were postmarked in Kansas City and they weren't supposed to be. It was about how like they had just set out on their travels and they're on the road. Why are they coming from Kansas City? So he might have just, like, thought, like, oh, she's old. She won't notice. He's getting sloppy. He's getting sloppy. He is, like, running all of these cons on cons on cons. He had other women that were, like, in the docket right now, Mm -hmm. too, that he was wooing and seducing. So he's got so much going on now. All the plates are spinning. Yep. And he is not keeping them in the air right now. Also, these letters were very grammatically correct with zero spelling errors. And Suzette didn't speak like that. Her mom said it wasn't like she was a not intelligent person. She just like wrote like she spoke and she wrote really quick. And if she made a mistake, she just kept going. She didn't go back and change it. So it was very weird to have these like perfectly composed letters. And they were also devoid of life and flair. It was almost like it was like we went to this place and we saw this thing and it was very nice. And that's just not how her like amazing, wild, big spirited daughters Mm -hmm. wrote or spoke. It was just devoid of that personality. And yep. It just wasn't. And it was the things she was writing about weren't things that she would be interested in or yeah. write about. So immediately her mom's like, something seems very, very, very wrong here. It's wild that like she knew her that well. They were extremely close. Yeah. This was tragic for Carol in every way. And in honestly, a big thing about, which I didn't even touch on before, but was that she didn't want to leave her mom. She very much considered not taking this opportunity for the one reason being how close and how much she loved her mother. Yeah. And her mother actually managed the fast food restaurant that she occasionally worked at. So they were very, very, very close. So then she got extremely alarmed when John Robinson called her. So he called Carol. And we don't know whether he thought maybe she was on to him or he's trying to distance himself from Suzette. And he said that Suzette had quit her job with him, that they had been in California. And she had run off with some man and that she'd also taken his bank card and she was fraudulently using it. And he was very upset about the entire situation. And so if and when her daughter, her thieving daughter, 
who ruined this amazing opportunity, got in touch with her. She should call him. He's like, please, can you have her call me? Because I'm very upset about this whole situation. If she has his bank card, can't he track where she is? You would think so. Yeah. Now, Carol was blown away by this because this just doesn't make any sense. That's not her daughter. That's not what she would do. Also, she would have called her. And she has not heard her voice. Yeah. If she did get in the situation, she'd be like, Mom, I'm making this crazy choice. I'm going to run away with this guy. She, this is like she would tell her. Yeah, but there's other kids who wouldn't. There's other kids that wouldn't, but this isn't her kid. Yeah, but I think he's gotten away with it. He's gotten away with it because most people do not talk to their parents as much. Mm -mm. So she is so upset. She calls her daughter, who I think lived in a different state. I think her daughter was in Florida or something. So she's like in Michigan and she's so upset. She's like, her daughter was like, I'm going to figure out how to call the police in Kansas City. So her daughter calls the Kansas City police and they were like, something is very wrong here. This just doesn't make any sense. We're getting these letters that don't make any sense. And they're like, oh, yeah, we know exactly who that is. And there's already an investigation going on. Yes. Yes. This is where we get somewhere. He had been on their radar for a long ass time. How long? Remember the probation officer, Steve Hames, mm -hmm. had been like on to him right around the time of Paula Godfrey and the Stasis. That happened in 1984. And now we are in 2000. This has been 16 years. So he had been kind of in general on the radar. But later on, Steve says that they had really kind of hoped against hope that John Robinson had aged out of murder while he was in prison. Like, he was there for six years. They kind of had hoped maybe they were wrong about the whole situation. Maybe he was just a con man. Like, maybe they just had not stayed on him as much as they possibly should have. But around the time that Suzette went missing, so this reignites the case, mm -hmm. The Lenexa police got a tip from an employee at an extended stay America that John was bringing women into their hotel, always the same room. And it seemed really not only just sketchy, but potentially criminal because they said that there was one woman who came in and asked if they could copy something for her or she could use the copy machine. And they said yes. And I'm not sure if it was the employee who's doing the copying or like she was doing the copying, but the paper jammed and the employee threw it out and then they redid it. And then he gave her back her original and the copy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's like on a shift and he looks over at the trash and it was a slave contract. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, we've already thought this guy was super shady. And now here's a slave contract where this woman was essentially signing over her life to him. So that employee was like, I'm going to go to the police now because something seems off, which is so smart. Even if it's like, oh, people just do weird stuff, like BDSM is a thing. If there's something that your gut is telling you or there's like the little hairs on the back of your neck, like raise up every time this person's around and there's women that are coming in and disappearing or he's checking them in and not checking them out or what's going on, you go to the police. Go to the police. So this kicks off a whole new investigation. So this was like around the time that Suzette went missing, but it was before her mother reported it, her mother slash sister. And I think Lore might have also been calling or messaging the police. But I think because of the whole Kansas City thing, like Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas, like I, I don't know if where Lore was messaging was the right department or something. Okay. So anyways, it all comes together and the Lenexa PD puts together a task force because they look into his history. They talk to Steve Hames. Now they know that Suzette is missing and they're like, we are going to put together a mother effing task force. 
before Remington was already up in their business and about to be like in their ear. And we've got Carol also being like, there's on the dateline, it's like she's recording conversations with him because she had his phone number because he called her. And also Suzette had given her his number and she called him and he's like, I don't know where she is, but like there's like teams on teams of people now like coming for him. Yeah. So one piece of information that Carol had given to the police was that Suzette was absolutely obsessed with her dogs, that she even put them in her purse to take them to the grocery store. Yeah. That was like that type of relationship. And so she's like, you should look for Pekingese dogs that might have been found because if they're not with her or, God forbid, they're dead, then he did something to her because she would not have parted with her dogs. So they do some good old-fashioned detective work find out, like, all the animal control, all the animal shelters, and they find Pika's new home. I think they ended up finding both dogs' new home. And I think it's the officer. I think he's on one of the shows I watched. And he said that not only did Pika still have visible crimps in the dog's hair from where she was braiding it, Mm because the mother was like, she likes to braid her dog's hair. When he said, Pika, Pika, come, the dog came. Do you think it's Pika because it's Pekingese or because of Pikachu? It's spelled P-E-K-A. Yeah, so I think so, Pekingese, yeah. yeah. So at that point, the police have a lead, because where were these dogs called in? But a mobile home park. Where he happens to live and his wife happens to manage. Le Santa Barbara. I mean, he was getting so sloppy now. Yeah. And he had made a big deal about paying and had thrown, Getting the dogs out. Uh, getting the dogs out yeah. of the... So this is like... There's a huge trail of him with these dogs right now. But they also now know that Suzette very likely met a terrible fate. They also know that based on these like comings and goings of room 120 at the Extended Stay America, that John Robinson was still actively luring women there. And he was very active online. So they need to do something to step in and try to save these women. And to do so, they contacted Laura Remington and they asked her to go undercover, essentially. Okay. She was, like, ready to, like, full-on, like, put me in, coach. I will go meet him. You can wire me up, do whatever you need. And they're like, I don't think that's really safe. We need to find out everything we can about his MO. And he's going to be trying to lure you. So they asked her for quite a few things. She had to give them an entire education on BDSM and how these online communities work. And she's literally, like, talking to the detectives and, like, the FBI and being like, this is how this community works. And this is what this like form of BDSM does. And this is like a totally normal way of communication. This is things that are red flags. And this is how this is different. And so she's telling him, and it's really funny because I think it's John Glatt's book that has some of these like email exchanges between her and this detective that's like, well, yeah, we don't get a lot of these cases. Even at one point, he's like, I think it's like that, the movie Eight Millimeter. She's like, that's just sex. That's not, has nothing to do with BDSM. Like, and he's like, oh, okay. Back to the drawing board. Like, it's like, this was such a new world. The internet, the BDSM, like, all of this. So she's, like, telling them. And meanwhile, they're educating her on when you talk to him on the phone, which she was, like, recording conversations to. Here's what you could say. This is what would be considered incriminating. Like, this is the type of information that we need to get. So they're working together at that point. And I think Tammy Taylor got involved with it, too. So we've got, like, the girls are on it right now. So Laura spent the next couple months forwarding every communication, like every recording of a communication, a a phone call or an email to Detective Jack Boyer. And at the same time that she's doing that and like everyone's like educating everyone else here, the police, this task force, were fully surveilling him at this point. 
they had agents posing as utility men. Wow. So they would climb like the telephone towers, but they were really like spying on him. They had a one officer go in his neighbor's backyard and pretend to be sunbathing. Just keep an eye on his mobile home. They had people coming to grab his garbage, which they did ultimately find some stuff from his garbage. Good. So they had like the garbage workers. I mean, they were all over him at this point. And they were also watching him when he set up a date with a psychiatrist named Vicky who drove from Texas. She also had a dog. She brought her dog with her to stay in the extended stay America room 120 with him. And so they got the room like right next door while they're meeting and they're trying to keep an eye on the situation. And Vicky did not have a good time with John. She was expecting more of a traditional BDSM relationship. She didn't like to be like hit, like not spanked, but I'm talking like slapped or punched. So she's like, that's not her style. She liked to talk to her partners. Is that normal in Gorian? I don't know about Gorian, but it's normal in BDSM to not straight up abuse yeah, like no. your partner. And it's also normal to have this like set of like, we already talked boundaries. about this boundaries. These are the rules. This is the safe word. This is like, and she was, I don't know what he sold her, but when they first got into their situation, they start hooking up. He was not accepting her boundaries, including taking photographs of her while she was naked and bound. So she was getting really upset. And they could hear this? Well, so they can't hear exactly what's going on, but they heard like a slapping sound, like it could be spanking. And they heard the dog barking because the dog was in the room. Yeah. And they're like, we don't know if this is part, because now they're like, are we going to rush in too fast? We, we, we want to save a woman from dying. Yeah. But we also... Can't blow our we cover. We can't blow yeah. our cover right now because we don't have enough. Yep. And in this circumstance, she was abused and assaulted, but she survived. And good because they did not end up intervening. This whole thing was, she still was like trying to move there to be with him. And he had told her that he was going to help her get a job as a psychologist in that area. And she was supposed to be moving. And so she had brought this bag that had $700 worth of sex toys to their exchange. <laughs> that is more like $1,275 worth of sex toys in today's money. It's like a duffel. It's got to be a duffel. It's described as like a bag. And these toys were described as some were gifts and they had sentimental <laughs> attachment. Like she was really into these toys. They were her toys. She's very close to these toys. And I mean, aren't you usually? I mean, I feel like you're intimate. It's not usually like sentimental, though, I wouldn't say. <laughs> so getting back to the story, she was already on the fence about how this was going to play out. She had driven all the way from Texas and they had not seemed like they had a great time. She didn't think she was on board with him. And then he was like, go home, pack up your stuff and you're going to move here. And she was like, oh, I don't know. And then as he's leaving, he just took her bag of dildos. I, I don't even know what it was. It could have been more interesting sex toys. It's just funnier to call it a bag of dildos. So he grabs her bag of sex toys and he just throws over his shoulder. And she's like, excuse me, you can't take that. And he's like, oh, well, I'm your dom and you're not using these until you get back to Kansas and you see me. So they're mine now. So she's pissed, but she gets back to Texas and he is supposed to be in contact with her about, I found you a job. I found you an apartment. Yep. And he's just kind of like pushing her off. And it's like going on weeks now that she's without her toys and she's getting mad about the toys. Yeah. And she said to him, okay, I don't care anymore. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to move to be with you, but I want my toys back. Mail my toys back to me. And he said, no. 
And she said, I'm going to call the police then. And he said, if you call the police, I will send those sex photos of you to like the board of psychologists in Texas or whatever her licensing board was and show them what kind of depraved shit you're into. And she wanted those sex toys so bad that she was like, I'm going to call the police anyway. All power to her. I was like, girl, good for you. that is awesome. She did it. So she called the police at that point. They're like, they've got this slave contract. They've got all of this stuff around the dogs and Suzette. Yep. They have this woman being like, he stole my sex toys. And also, he assaulted me. That was not my will. Yeah. And they knew. And it was when she called, they were like, we know exactly who she is. Because they had been surveilling him. But they just were in this case where they were like, do we have enough, though? Do we have enough? So it's at the end of May. And... There was another woman that had contacted the police after he had gone rogue in a BDSM session and had injured her. And she was very upset. And he had, like, apparently left his wallet or something in the room. And she found out that his name was John Robinson. And it wasn't whatever he'd said it was to her because he was using a different name. Michelangelo. (laughs) I think it was, like, some... He always used different, like, variations. Like, like JT, JR, or something like that. Yeah. She went to the police, too, saying that this man lied to me and he assaulted me. And so now they've got that. And they still are like, okay, is it time? Is it time? Because it's such a precarious dance to figure out when it's time. And they ended up deciding at the end of May that they had to do it, even if it wasn't the right time, because he was talking to two very high-risk women. He was talking to a woman that had an eight-year-old child, and he was encouraging her to bring the child. And he was also talking to a 17-year-old girl who had just had a baby and was living in her car with the baby and was so desperate that she was willing to do anything to improve her situation. And they were like, it has to stop here. We can't put these children, these babies in this situation. These are not, like, the psychologist, like, she had signed up for what was potentially maybe going to be consensual sex. Yes, yeah. This is not the same situation. These children are not signing themselves up for this. And so they were like, it doesn't matter. We have to get him off the street. So at 10.15 a.m. on Friday, June 2nd, 2000, John Edward Robinson was arrested at his mobile home and then charged with aggravated sexual battery of two of the witnesses we talked about, two of the women who came forward, and felony theft because of Vicky's sex toys. Amazing. That's the original charges. They had to hold him on while they got search warrants so they could gather the rest of the evidence. Wow. Icon. I mean, it's incredible. In the end of the day, this is a man who exerted control over women. And it was a series of women, her mother, lovers of Suzette, lovers of him, basically, friends, BDSM submissives who went like undercover, as well as a giant bag of sex toys that would help bring this serial killer to justice. Unbelievable. I'm just incredibly impressed by everything. And, of course, the law enforcement who were involved in this, at least later on, there were some spots I feel like they missed early on, but here we are. We got here at the end of the day. We got here. Yeah, so once they had John safely tucked away in jail, they exercised search warrants for his home, his farm, anything that he had ever rented, leased, his storage units. They went balls to the wall, basically. And what they found would be Most illuminating and shocking and sadly for some people involved in this, not surprising. It's shocking because of some of the elements, and we'll discuss that right now. 
At John Robinson's 16 and a half acre farm, cadaver dogs picked up a scent near a shed where there was like some broken lawnmower equipment and some other things just kind of like piled up. There was also two sealed 85-gallon barrels. No. So when they tried to move one of these barrels, a reddish liquid started oozing from the lid. And immediately there was this kind of faint smell of decomposition. But when they said when they opened the barrel, it was like the smell of decay and death hit them. Because you also have to remember it's really hot. It was an uncommonly hot June in Kansas at this point. They said it was like unbelievably vile, but also there was no mistaking it. Is this the part you were riding on the train today when you were? Yes, when I was going. This is a desperately hard time to write, guys, when I was out in the city the night before with Andy and I'm on a moving train and I'm also writing about this. This exact part was like I was not feeling very well for this. So they immediately find in the first barrel that there is a human woman in the fetal position, naked, blindfolded, and she is obviously deceased. When they transport these barrels to the medical examiner, they find that the woman in the first barrel has pierced nipples. She has a blindfold on and long dark hair pulled into a ponytail. She was determined to be Suzette, which they thought because it fit the timeline okay. of the decay. And that was later proven. So this is Suzette. They found her. The medical examiner determined that John had Killed her with a hammer blow to the left side of her head. She had a circular punch-out wound of about one-fourth inches, and there were bone pieces in her brain. The second barrel contained what they considered at the beginning a Jane Doe, because they did not know who this was. They were already concerned about... Lisa and Tiffany, of course, and Paula, who had been so long ago, but also Catherine from before he went to prison. So they had some ideas. They had no idea who Isabella was. I don't think her parents had gone to the police. They didn't know for a long time who she was. She was found, I think, wearing just a thin robe. And her face was covered by a pillowcase. And later, Barbara would say that there was a set of sheets in the place she moved into that was missing one pillowcase. And it was this very specific green and purple set of sheets. So obviously it ended up being Isabella. She was killed in exactly the same way, only she had two blows to the side of her head. And given that I believe he is right-handed, that means he was looking at them while he was doing it because the right hand to the left side of the face. There were no defensive wounds found on either women, and they extrapolated from that that the women were stunned and it was a surprise, but they also quite possibly could have been bound. I don't think it was like it came out of blue and they didn't have time to fight. They were most likely tied up. And at that point, having been in the barrels for so long, I don't think you would have found any like ligature marks, especially because I don't know exactly what kind of things he used. They might not have left marks. So shortly after that grisly discovery, and they looked everywhere, they would end up finding in the trailer on the property, they did find the murder weapons. They found hammers, chisels. They found some of Suzette's blood in the bedroom of, I believe, the trailer. So they're finding more evidence, but those were the only two bodies they found on the farm. And they tried everything. They looked through ponds. They looked through every outbuilding. I mean, they really exhaustively searched this, and they were doing, like, the radar and the helicopters, the whole nine yards. 
they did end up finding more victims, just not at the farm. This time it was in a store more for less storage unit facility in Raymore, Missouri. They found three barrels. Two of them had been starting to leak. And John had put down kitty litter around the floor. An attempt to absorb the smell. Kitty litter. They are thinking there's three barrels here. Who do we know that he disappeared? It's got to be Paula Godfrey, maybe Lisa and Tiffany, and then maybe Catherine. Because I think at this point they had found out that Catherine had been associated with him too. And then when they open the barrels, they're like, holy shit, we do not know who these people are. None of these people have been in these barrels since 1984. These people have all been killed more recently than that. So they are not the people they're expecting. Wow. So now they're like, how many victims are there out there? So the elderly manager of the Stormore actually gave them a promising lead. She was, first of all, totally taken aback. She could not believe that they were going after his units because she said he was like the friendliest guy she'd ever met. And he was so nice. And she was like, not my John, no. Yeah, your John lady. Yeah. The one with she the mustache was, shirt. She <laughs> that detail. I love if like somebody picks that up and like starts saying it like it's real <laughs> about the free mustache ride shirt. And that serial killer even wore a free mustache ride shirt. But no, so she was saying, well, okay, here's everything I can tell you about him and everything he ever said to me, including that he was storing the stuff of his sister Beverly, who was on a trip to oh, Australia. Thunder. Yep. And that's when they put it together that he had had a relationship with her in prison and where she had moved. And nobody had reported her missing, too, because they were getting letters from her from all around the world. Now they have a lead on Beverly, and they did, I think it was through dental records and later on DNA. She was one of the victims. In the storage unit. In the storage unit. So Beverly was found, Beverly Bonner. Detectives also discovered that Sheila and Debbie Faith's social security checks were being sent to the same P.O. box that Beverly's alimony checks were being mm -hmm. sent. And that was how they were able to identify Sheila and Debbie, who were the other two victims found in the storage unit. All of the additional victims we just talked about, so Beverly, Sheila, and Debbie were killed in a very similar way. It was a blunt force trauma to the left side of their head, very likely with a hammer or some other type of weapon similar to a hammer. Unlike the other victims, including her daughter and Beverly, Sheila's body showed severe defensive wounds. And it appeared that Sheila had fought like hell, I believe, in an effort to save her daughter. Unfortunately, Lisa's body was not recovered. But they're thinking, where the hell is Lisa and Tiffany yeah. and Paula? Paula's poor parents. Oh, they went through it too. Well, I have some good news for you, Andy. Yeah? Little baby Tiffany was found alive. Where? Well, she was much, much closer to the Robinson family than anyone could have ever imagined. Tiffany was now a 15-year-old girl named Heather Tiffany Robinson. She had been adopted as a baby by John Robinson's younger brother, Donald, and his wife. Ow. <laughs> That's all you have to say? What did they find her on the street? Like, I don't know. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Donald and his wife had absolutely no idea that their brother and therefore Heather's Uncle John 
had murdered Heather's biological mother. Lisa's dead. Lisa is dead. Essentially, while this is going down, Uncle John is arrested, right? And when they found the bodies and that starts making news, a family member related to both Donald and John called the police and said, I think you need to look into my brother's daughter because John was the one who facilitated the adoption. And I would not be surprised if she is Tiffany Stassi because they were saying that he was also being questioned in connection to the disappearance of Lisa and baby Tiffany. Wow. Heather, who is now our age because she is a 1984 baby, is on the new estate line about this case. There was a dateline that came out like when this was breaking kind of or a little bit after it was breaking. And then there's one that came out just a couple years ago, I think, and Heather's on it and talking about this moment of when her father got this call and she was 15 years old. And they said this is about John and we believe he may have done something to Heather's biological mother. It's so crazy. And her life was turned upside down. Can you even imagine? In a second. They were very much vetted, Donald and his wife. They had no idea what was going on at and this point. And were they completely kind to Tiffany? Oh, they were great parents. Okay. She said, especially her dad, she loves her dad. He's on the show. She very much says that that's like her father to her in every way. He's very protective of her. So Donald and his wife, Helen, had been trying to have a baby for I think close to a decade or maybe even over a decade when they began the process of trying to adopt. Yep. So this was all going down in 1983, 1984. Now, the fees involved in the adoption were really insane. And I'm not sure if they had tried to do some other stuff, obviously, first that had bankrupted them. But he was essentially telling his brother, John, all we want is to have a child, but we are running out of money, essentially. Yeah. John was like, hey, don't worry, I got you. I am so connected to everyone in Kansas City. I know this guy who is an incredible adoption attorney. He works with different charitable organizations. And I think that I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to get you a baby. And this coincided with John's interest in uh, charitable organizations that helped young mothers. The family eventually paid him $5,500. And Helen is the name used in the book. I'm not sure because he did use John Glatt did use some um, pseudonyms. I mean, I know the dad's name is Donald. So Donald and his wife were led to believe that those were attorney's fees yeah. that they were paying. And he was providing them with paperwork and everything. And so there was a baby that he was supposed to get that fell through, apparently. That might have been around the time that he was like, no, I don't want the black babies. Remember? Yeah. The black mothers and babies. Because he's also racist. On January 10th, 1985, the same day that Lisa and Tiffany disappeared in a snowstorm, that was the day that John called Donald and said, I think they were living in Chicago at the time. And he was like, get on a plane, get here, your baby's here, we got your baby. And he had forged all of this paperwork. They thought it was totally legitimate. And there is a picture that is haunting of John Robinson holding up baby Tiffany, now baby Heather, with the whole family happy and smiling because this is the day that they met their baby. I can believe and the all of the authorities and the law enforcement, everyone believes that they had no idea. They really did think that this was true and they did submit all of the documentation he gave them. And it did look on the up and up, but it was all completely fortune faked. 
But it must have tricked people for a while because she had to enroll in school and there had to be paperwork when you go to the doctor. It must have been convincing enough. Yeah. Here's where I get stuck because a lot of people ask, like, well, what is Nancy's role in this? I don't think she was actively involved, obviously, in, like, the killings. But this is what stuck out to me as, honestly, I was going to say, like, a mother, but this is not even a mother. This is just a rational human being. She later told the authorities that they were asking specifically about the day that Tiffany showed up. Yeah. And she said that he arrived with a dirty, hungry baby that did not have any diapers, that did not have any bottles, did not have any formula, did not have any toys. It had nothing. And said that essentially somebody at this charity or something had given him the baby or was or abandoned the baby or something. And then she said that she had to go out in the snowstorm and go buy stuff for the baby. She went out, she got the diaper, she got the formula, she got the bottle. She did it, she did it, she took care of the baby, she bathed the baby, and the next day handed it over to her in-laws. But how does this feel on the up and up at all? It just doesn't. I mean, it's totally possible she was a victim or she was Stockholm syndromed or something is going on here. Yeah, also abused into just doing everything he, he says. said. He yeah. said, yes. And so I'm not blaming her in this case, but it just is all along the way, there's so many spots where you're like, how did you look the other way? How did you not ask questions? How did you stay in this situation? They also found, I think it was like in his desk or maybe it was something he tried to throw out. He had kept the roadway in receipt from Lisa Stasi's day. So all this time. But honestly, it was more like Heather's existence was a trophy. Yeah. That he got to see her at family functions. Like her existence was a trophy. Now, based on what I've read so far, nothing else has come out. Like I said, his children and grandchildren seem to have like at least initially supported him or no one has come forward saying like he was actually an abusive monster. They seem to be blindsided by this. Of course, like kids wouldn't know. He's hiding this from them for sure. And grandchildren, of course not. But when Heather is on the Dateline episode and they're asking her about what she went through, which was, by the way, horrible. He had changed her birthday. So she thought she was born in October. She loved having like a Halloween-y birthday. And it was really September. So they changed her birthday. She said she spent her 16th birthday, her sweet 16, just crying her eyes out. It didn't feel like her birthday. The media had published her yearbook photo. She's a minor. She was, at the time that this all was revealed, she was 15 years old. And the newspapers had published a picture of her being like, this is the, the stolen child. Not okay. I mean, I can't imagine just being a teenager is hard enough. And yeah. then finding all of this out and it was so publicly happening. Yeah. It was altogether horrible. Also, now she's terrified because there was a threat that they were going to take her away from her parents. Yeah. Because it wasn't a legal adoption. I think it was her dad because I don't know what happened if her parents split or what happened, but her dad legally adopted her when she was 18. Okay, good. But she was terrified that she was going to be taken from the only home she's ever yeah. known. They're, of course, like grilling her parents, trying to find out if there's any involvement. So she's scared. She's also trying to like learn everything she can about what's going on and her mother, who her real mother was. Her father got involved. And this was like, he ended up on like the original Dateline, I think. And what really turned me off, and you can tell she talks about how as of the time that she filmed the Dateline, the most recent one, she had still, like she's our age, had not met her father, her biological father, Carl. And she says it's because she didn't really have any interest. She said that her father, like he kept trying to get in touch with her, but like through the media. And even um, there was a line in the John Glatt book when this was all going down because the John Glatt book only goes up until it doesn't even cover the trial. It was like an unfolding case when this okay. was happening. And 
I guess he said something to a reporter that he had hired a lawyer to arrange a reconciliation with Tiffany and he was negotiating film rights. The quote is, it'd make a hell of a movie. I'd need a good price. You better get it in now because they're starting to roll in. I got people overseas calling. Gross. And her father, Donald, wrote him a really long letter saying like, hey, I know you really want to meet your daughter. Of course, I get that. I'm also like, we're her fathers. Like I have raised her since she was a baby and I'm just looking out for her. She's already been exposed to so much. And right now she can't really handle like this one more level of like being part of a new family. Yeah. Especially when I don't think he saw this in his letter, but clearly this guy is like trying to make it like public. Yeah. Trying to monetize off of it. Yes. And she said that he he never wrote back after that. He didn't really have an interest in a real relationship. No. And she also questioned, why were we in that situation? Why were mom and I in a, a woman's shelter? Yeah. Why weren't you taking care of us? I think she believes that her father did abuse her mother. So this is a lot for her to realize. So she's going through all of this, but then on Dateline, they ask her like, okay, so was this a shock? Like, was this like, oh my gosh, my uncle John killed my biological mother. Yeah. My uncle John's a serial killer. And she's like, no, in some ways it was confirming. There was a feeling, I thought I was the crazy one. I got this very, very bad feeling about him. The vibes were bad. And she tells a story about something that had happened only months before he's arrested. She said that she was, it maybe had happened anywhere from like, I think it was like six to eight months. So she was either 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. And she attended a wedding of one of his children that was taking place in Florida. And it's the end of the night. People are dancing. And he starts grinding on her. This is her uncle. And pushing himself like full flush against her body while they're dancing. And he starts asking her if she's ever had sex, if it hurt. Did she like that it hurt? So he's asking her all these creepy questions. And then they keep talking. And it's it's unclear to me whether like her parents were having a marital issue or whether it was just like teenage stuff and she's having a problem with her parents. Yeah. There was something going on in the home. And he's like, I know that you're having a really hard time right now with your parents. And I just want you to know that you can come stay with me anytime you want. He's like, call this number. Don't tell anyone. I will send you a plane ticket. It'll be our secret. And you can just get away. You'll just get away and you can come stay with me. You don't even have to tell your parents. And I'll take care of you. And she said that one month before he was arrested, she was about to take him up on it. And that, to me, seems like that would have been ultimate to him. Yeah. Now that she was, like, of, turning of into age. a woman. Yeah. It was, like, the ultimate, like, round circle of, like, what he had done. Full yeah. circle of what, like, he was accomplishing and, like, this ultimate trophy. And she said that if she had gone, she was like, I would be dead. I would be in those barrels. I would be a woman in a barrel. So sad. It's so sad. And she is so brave and she's so strong. And Heather has since, I think she has a YouTube channel called The Lisa Stasi Effect. It might be Stacy too. People said it different ways on the show. She also, I think she was launching a podcast. She was interviewing her dad for an episode, but then I couldn't find it. So if you guys know where it is, I saw that there was a YouTube. And she's married. She has kids. She has a very supportive husband. Good. And her goal is to find where her mother is, where her mother's remains are and give her a proper burial because they have never found Lisa or Paula or Catherine. Yeah, so definitely check out the most recent Dateline. I think I put it in the show notes, so check it out there, guys, if you want to see how incredible Heather is and how 
very committed to her journey she is. She's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my mom. She's like full of pain and frustration and a lot of anger. And there was even a part where she's now connecting with her mother's side of the family. Not really Carl's, it sounds like, but like her mom's. Yeah. And somebody gave her a letter that was supposed to be from Lisa saying like, oh, I'm alive. I'm okay. John Robinson never did anything. He only helped me and my child. I just can't come forward. And the family member was like, I wanted to give this to you, but I also didn't want to give it to you because I didn't want to like give you any false hope or anything. Yeah. And she was like, there was no way my mom wrote this. Again, it was typewritten when Lisa could not type. And she took it to Steve Hames, the guy who was on this case who had been looking for her, the probation officer. And he said it was typical, John Robinson. The part where he says like he didn't, he was a great man and did nothing to help me was just so, it was like in line with everything he always said. In 2002, John went to trial in Kansas for the murders of Suzette, Isabella, and Lisa because they felt like they could definitively prove that she was dead because of Heather's existence. Because the bodies had been found in Kansas, that's why he was being tried for their murders there. Meanwhile, he was going to be tried for the murders of Beverly, Sheila, and Debbie in Missouri because that's where the bodies were discovered. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we got two separate trials, and both Kansas and Missouri were gunning for the death penalty. There's just a lot of evidence, especially in Suzette's case particularly. And then, of course, with the Kansas trial, we've got Heather testifying. I mean, her father testified. It's very emotional, and there was just no question that he was guilty. I mean, they have everything. They have the bodies, the barrels, the murder weapons. They have the dogs. I mean, it was just overwhelming. And the prosecution really wanted to show the dynamics he had with these women and these relationships. So they made the decision to show a 39-minute video, which was of him having BDSM-style sex with Suzette. And the whole 39 minutes, the whole 39 minutes. And jurors said it was extremely hard to watch. It was very graphic. It was very disturbing. And what was noticeable about it was that Suzette is so effervescent that even like even when she's supposed to be playing like the sub or the slave, like she like tries to click into that name, but she's like cheeky and funny and it comes out. But he is like scary and monotonous and like on task. And it's disturbing. And then it's really creepy too because the tape like stops and it goes immediately into Willy Wonka because he had taped over like his children's. So Gene Wilder just pops up on screen. Yeah. It's just jarring. They also said on the dateline that people saw him the whole time he was at his own trial. He was like a bored businessman at a meeting. When they played this tape, he got closer to the screen and sat up and tried to get a better view and seemed extremely interested in what was going on. So he was getting his jollies off. Yeah. He didn't look ashamed. And meanwhile, Nancy Joe and one of his daughters who was supporting him were sitting right behind him and having to watch this whole thing. What did they look like? I mean, I'm sure the defense warned them. Their lawyers warned them they were going to show this. They just, they sat behind him and watched it with no expression. Anyway, I don't think it's going to come as a surprise to any of you that he was convicted on all counts. What? (laughs) Yeah. He was convicted on all of the first-degree murders as well as kidnapping and interfering with parental custody. Wow. 
And he was sentenced to death. In both states? Well, so we're going to get into Missouri in just a second. But basically, Kansas sentenced him to death. And they said that it was like one of the longest criminal trials I think Kansas had ever had. And it took the jury like half an afternoon to determine it. And then three weeks later, they're like, also, yes, death, please. More death immediately, please. And the jurors had a very good reason for choosing the death penalty in this case. They said he's already been in prison and he conned somebody. Yep. And he killed her. So life in prison is not actually good enough because he will con people. And the question about the provenance of this letter that one of Lisa's relatives got happened while he was in prison. So they're like, how would he be able to type this? How would he smuggle it out? And it's like, he's still conning people. He's a very dangerous person. And it was never about looks. It was never about health. Like Steve Hames says something. He's like, we hoped he was just a con man. We hoped that he was aging out of the game, but he will do this till the day he dies. It's who he is. So that's Kansas. But here's the thing is that they don't really execute in Kansas. They'll give you the death penalty, but you'll just live on death row until you die. The last time they executed was in 1965. Meanwhile, Missouri, they'll execute your ass. I think they executed like four people last year. They will fuck you up. And so his defense attorneys were like, I mean, they weren't even really trying. On Dateline, they said that like the defense was like, please don't kill him because we can't really say that he didn't do it. So they were like basically already arguing against the death penalty rather than like saying he didn't do it. Now, Missouri's case wasn't as strong because they could not really prove where the murders happened. They found them in the storage unit, but it wasn't like in the Suzette case where there was like evidence of... Yeah, the murder weapon. The murder weapon and where she had likely been murdered. So now they're like, okay, well, our case is not as strong, but it's pretty obvious what happened here. But also you're going to be worried about him coming over here and actually getting executed. So they made an agreement basically between the attorneys that they would take the death penalty off the table and he would get to serve out his sentence on death row in Kansas if he revealed the locations of his victims. And he said no. He refused to give up the locations. It's the last bit of power. It's the last bit of control. Death row for him? No, they ended up letting him plead guilty. So saying that he did kill Catherine and Debbie and Sheila and Lisa and all the people, the bodies that they hadn't found, but that he said he did it, but he wouldn't give any more details or really any apologies. And really the pleading guilty was not an Alfred plea, but it was like along lines of like, I recognize that you can probably get me for it. So I'll say I did it, but whatever. Yeah. And it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating, especially for Heather, who desperately wants to find her mother. Yeah. So he is in Kansas. He is on death row. He will likely die there. I mean, he will certainly die there, but it will most likely be of natural causes or just old age rather than an execution. But this is a type of man who needs oxygen. He needs people. He needs freedom for his schemes and scams. So I hope this is an enduring hell for him to not have that opportunity. In 2005, Nancy Jo Robinson filed for divorce after 41 years of marriage, citing incompatibility and irreconcilable differences. Yeah, I'd say. Those are like truly the least reconcilable differences, I would say. (laughs) Oh my gosh, well... A devastating case, especially for the victims' families who have not been able to 
have any sort of closure or lay their loved ones to rest. And a cautionary tale for a new era. I mean, this all went down the 90s and he was arrested in 2000. Yeah. And it really did feel like the dawning of a new type of internet predator and serial killer. Well, I hope you all sleep well tonight. This this has been an uplifting episode. (laughs) Two episodes. You're welcome. Two episodes. Oh, my goodness. In conclusion, technology changes, but honestly, red flags remain the same. Yeah. And there's always some new ones that are popping up, so we'll be sure to watch out for them for you. Yes, absolutely. There's always new flags. I would say that CIA is still number one on our list. It's pretty high up there. But, you know, as they come up, guys, we will whack-a-mole these red flags with you and for you. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one needs to get whack-a-moled. Bye. Bye. Bye.